Let's look to the Lord in prayer before we hear from his word. Almighty God, all scripture is breathed out by you. All of it. Every book, every word. And it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, correction, and for our training in righteousness. That we as your people, as your church, might be complete and equipped for every good work. God, help us to treat your word with such reverence. Be with me as I speak and be with your people as they listen. Give us great joy from what we find there. Help us to be encouraged in our lives as we continue to look to Christ, our author and perfecter of the faith. In Jesus' name and through the Holy Spirit, amen. Have you ever felt abandoned by God? Really? Think back to a time. I don't mean to be so bleak, but really think. Was it when the diagnosis was given? Or when the news was delivered? Or when the spouse just walked out? The situation hopeless? Was it when your decision was just impossible? Maybe it was a really long time ago. Maybe it wasn't so long ago. Maybe it's right now. We've all had those times, haven't we? It's just simply part of the Christian life. That's what we heard in the psalm that was read earlier by Mr. Al. How long, O Lord... I don't mean to depress you at the beginning of this sermon, but I have no intention of being fake with you. Um, as delighted as I am to be back this morning with you. Truly delighted. Truly. I must be transparent and confess not only that I have felt abandoned by God during these past two months. Deacons, help me out. Get me some tissues. Appreciate it. Particularly these past two weeks. But also that I've not yet fully recovered from that feeling. I have felt completely abandoned by God during what was to me might not seem very big to those of you who have gone through maybe some more difficult times, but what was to me the most difficult decision I have ever made or tried to make in my life. Mary and I have decided to forego a dream ministry for me 
and career in Washington, D.C., and stay at Crosspoint with you, whom we love dearly. But it wasn't pretty. I have been totally in the dark, ticked off my employers and potential employers, perhaps burned bridges. I've groped for anything that would give me any measure of clarity. I've been confused, been indecisive stressed to the point of physical illness. That was last week when I sang the last note and went to the ER like a spaz. And I've even been a little bit manipulative. That's what we do when we feel abandoned. Well, preachers sometimes preach... um, Sermons about specific issues in their church's life that need to be addressed. Sometimes, right or wrong, we preach sermons that are directed towards specific people in the congregation. You know who you are. (laughs) This morning, my primary audience is myself. I need to hear the sermon. And I've, while I've lacked certainty on nearly everything for the past, well, two months, God has given me an overwhelming sense of certainty on what I am to preach this morning. Unfortunately, he didn't decide to tell me until Friday evening. <laughs> Our passage this morning will be the book of Esther. No, you heard me. All of it. I hope you didn't make lunch plans. And I will pick up my pace. I am kidding with you. I mean, I'm not kidding about the whole book, but um, I promise to be aware of time. About 35 minutes from now, we'll be finished singing the closing song, but... But you'll certainly need a Bible this morning, so please turn in your own or to the ones we provided for you to the book of Esther, chapter 1, and that's page 410, I believe, in the Crosspoint Bibles. Esther, chapter 1, page 410 in the Crosspoint Bibles. And the table of contents is at the beginning. Book of Esther is a story, a captivating story, and I believe a true story. It has nearly all the ingredients we as human beings enjoy in a good story. It's got a hero, in this case, a very beautiful young heroine, Um, has a, a villain, pretty ghastly villain actually. It's got a An Arabian night, a a, a majestic Persian kingdom, has romance, suspense, justice, and it even has a delightfully happy ending. 
It has it all. Or does it? It actually seems to lack a very important ingredient, which might disappoint many of us this morning. It seems to lack God. Where is God? There is zero mention of God in the book of Esther. He appears to be absent. Put five minutes more on that clock. Sorry about that. It's your service to me this morning. He appears to be absent. And yet, throughout church history, our forefathers, although some have raised a complaint about this book, have acknowledged the book of Esther as Holy Scripture. It was included in Jesus' Bible. Why? Because the apparent absence of God, the perceived abandonment of God, is just the point. He is not absent. He is not abandoned. The point of Esther and the point I want us to remember and come away with this morning is that God is always at work. Even when he appears to be absent, God is always at work for the good of his people and the accomplishment of his great purposes. Let's see this for ourselves as we walk through the book of Esther together. Here's the setting briefly. Chapter 1 begins as any good story does with a king and a palace. King is the famous King Xerxes, which is the name I'll be using for him instead of that weird Persian name that some of you might see in your Bibles. Ahasuerus did not want to say that 30 times. So same guy. Don't be confused by that. Um, king Xerxes is king of Persia, that massive empire which spanned its largest extent during Xerxes' reign. In chapter 1, verse 1 of Esther, we see that the Persian kingdom spanned from India all the way to Ethiopia. Huge. And the Jews at this time, if you recall your biblical history, had been deported out of Jerusalem and into Babylon by the Babylonians in 586 B.C. 586 B.C. Now, 50 years later, in 539 B.C., we work backwards, right? Because we're going to Christ. 539 B.C., King Cyrus of Persia defeats the Babylonians, absorbs their vast empire to himself, quite, a, quite the spoil, and he inherits uh, the Jewish captives that the Babylonian kingdom had, God's people. In the book of Esther, which takes place around 480 B.C., 480, 480 about 100 years after the exile first began, the book of Esther 
tells us a story about how God was apparently absent and how God's people were threatened with with extinction and even total annihilation had it not been for God's invisible behind-the-scenes intervention. So this morning, let's comb through the book of Esther in excerpt fashion, uh, and this will take the majority of our time, probably about 20 minutes. We're not going to read the whole thing, excerpts. We're going to cover the whole book in three acts, and then we'll move to application for the last few minutes. So the majority of our time, I'm just letting you know, will be in the Word. So hang with me. It's story time. Chapter 1. Once upon a time. King Xerxes was feeling rather impressed with himself, and he decides to throw a luxurious and extravagant party. Chapter 1, verse 3. In the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him, while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. That's six months, folks. After these 180 days, he opens the palace to the citizens of Susa, the capital city, for seven days, so that everyone, not just his officials, not just his employees, but everyone, great and small, might just see how great he is. On the last day of this 187-day-long party, and Xerxes is completely wasted by this point, he remembers that he hasn't yet shown off everything to his partiers and friends. So he does what any drunk husband does, and he calls for his wife to come in and dance. Well, Queen Vashti refuses, King Xerxes becomes furious, and he issues a kingdom-wide edict informing everybody in the whole kingdom that Vashti, Queen Vashti, is divorced and banished from his presence forever. He announces it to the whole world, and he also announces that another queen, a more beautiful and obedient queen, will soon be sought to take her place. Chapter 2. King Xerxes orders that all the beautiful young virgins of the entire kingdom be brought into his harem, his club, and... um, cosmetically prepared, beautified for a whole year to spend an evening with him. Classy, right? One of these women was a Jewish exile, Hadassah, or Esther, who was the adopted daughter of Mordecai, also Jewish, her cousin, actually, and apparently one of the palace guards. Well, Esther quickly wins favor within the harem and is advanced to the most prestigious level of all the king's women. And all this she does while keeping her Jewish identity a secret. Once she's brought to the king, he is smitten with her and quickly crowns her queen of Persia, replacing that disobedient and fun-sucking Queen Vashti. One important aside at this point, 
shortly after Esther's coronation as, qu- as queen, uh, Mordecai, while he's on duty, overhears two of the palace guards conspiring an assassination attempt on King Xerxes. He becomes a valuable informant along with Esther because he informs Queen Esther, who in in turn informs the king, who then proceeds to investigate the case, find the conspirators guilty, and then bring them to justice, even death. So Esther and Mordecai, secretly related to one another, secretly Jewish in their identity and religion, save the king's life, but are unnoticed and unrewarded and quickly go forgotten. That's act one, making progress. Everything's great for the most part. God's people are flourishing, even in a foreign palace. But now let's move to act two. As a villain is introduced, and God's people quickly find themselves in a precarious and hopeless situation. Act two, the plot to kill God's people. Chapter three, let's pick up in verse one. After these things, King Xerxes promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. We don't know why. Maybe for religious reasons. Maybe he was jealous of Haman's promotion when he had saved the king's life and been unrecognized. We don't know. Verse 5. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. or He restrained himself from laying hands on Mordecai alone. So, as they, that is the other guards, so as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. Remember, that's India to Ethiopia. All the Jews that exist, destroy them. Well, Haman and his officials get right to work on their plan. They cast lots. Hebrew word poor, the word for lot, that's going to be significant later. They cast lots to seek divine guidance on assigning a particular date to this impending Jewish judgment day, a kingdom-wide holocaust for all Jews. Haman submits his proposal to Xerxes for approval, who immediately grants permission Just sheer wickedness. After all, anyone who behaves disobediently like Vashti should be punished. Verse 11, chapter 3, verse 11. And the king said to Haman, The money is given to you, the people also. And then these chilling words. Do with them as you please. Or do with them as it seems good to you. This is not government. This is genocide. So Haman's genocide is approved by the king, no problem. The king gives Haman his uh, authoritative signet ring, and Haman immediately sends out a kingdom-wide edict that informs all citizens everywhere 
from India to Ethiopia of the approaching Jewish judgment day, and he demands that everyone in the kingdom play their role in annihilating the Jews, the Jewish people, from the face of the earth. Now, let's pause for a moment and reflect on what's at stake here. Should Haman's scheme be carried out, all of God's people would be destroyed. The scheme isn't just immoral. This scheme is satanic. Psalm 2, 1 and 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers of the earth take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed or his Mashiach, his Messiah. The destruction of the Jews in Esther's time could only mean the destruction and failure of the promises of God. No Jews, no Christ. No Christ, no cross, no cross, no salvation for you. That's what's at stake here. The very gospel is at stake in Haman's scheme. And where is God? It's not even mentioned. How does that sit with you? You've been in a similar situation when you needed God the most and he seemed most absent. How's that sit with you? Let's see how it sat with Mordecai. Chapter 4, verse 1. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. Well, by this point, Mordecai's behavior draws Esther's attention and, he, and she sends him some clothes to spare his life since no one was allowed to wear sackcloth even within the king's proximity. It was against the law, punishable by death. But Mordecai refuses these clothes, these gifts, this attempt to spare his life, and urges Esther to plead her people's case before the king. Chapter 4, verse 14. Mordecai says to Esther, For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom For such a time as this, Esther musters up godly courage and replies in verse 16, go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Esther realizes the gravity of the situation, the timing of her calling, the responsibility of her position in the kingdom. 
and she agrees to confront the king. She chooses to live by faith even when she's uncertain of the outcome. Chapter 5, verse 1. We're moving here. On the third day, that is the third day of the fast after it was over, on the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace where she ought not to go. In front of the king's quarters, while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight. And he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. And the king said to her, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given you, even to half of my kingdom. And Esther said, if it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. (laughs) Didn't see that coming. So the king and Haman attend the feast. And while they're buzzed with wine, the king asks Esther again to make her request known, to which Esther responds by inviting them to yet another feast on the next day. Stall tactic. Well, Haman, that wicked Haman, on his way home from the first party, stumbling, as you might imagine, notices Mordecai in his drunken stupor uh, at the city gate. And he sees again that Mordecai does not bow and pay him homage. And he's reminded of his hatred of him and toward his people, the Jews. And in his drunken rage, he stomps into his house and vents his anger about Mordecai to his wife and to his friends who give him a wonderfully wicked idea. Verse 14 of chapter 5. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows fifty cubits high be made. And in the morning, tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman. And he had the gallows made. Chapter 6. That same night, the king had trouble sleeping. Since something beginning to brew here, the king had trouble sleeping and orders that the history books of his reign be, met, be read to him. Modesty at its finest. And to the king's dismay, he discovers that Mordecai was never honored for saving the king's life from the two conspirators. Remember that? He had been completely forgotten. So as the king discusses this problem with his counselors, Haman walks in, his face probably beaming with the idea he's about to present to Xerxes about getting rid of Mordecai, that nuisance. Verse 6 of chapter 6. So Haman came in, and the king said to him, What should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, Whom would the king delight to honor more than me? Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. 
and let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. The king is pleased with Haman's suggestion and allows him to do all that he has said for Mordecai. So reluctantly, Haman parades Mordecai around the square of the city and shouts praises to everyone about how great and honorable Mordecai is. Well, afterward, Haman returns home humiliated, utterly humiliated, tells his friends and his wife what had happened to him, but their response is all but comforting. They respond by prophesying to Haman that Mordecai and the Jews, the very people whom Haman is out to destroy, will soon destroy him. Chapter 7. A bit later, while the king and Haman are intoxicated once again, (laughs) it's a theme. This time at Esther's second feast, the king asks Esther to let her request, that request, let it be made known to me now. And finally, as if the fullness of time had come, Esther reveals all and informs the king that her own life, along with the lives of her people, her own life was in danger and being threatened by an evil villain within the kingdom, even within the palace. Verse 5, the king's response. Then King Xerxes said to Queen Esther, Who is he? And where is he who has dared to do this? And Esther said, A foe and enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. Well, the king is outraged and even excuses himself into the palace garden to pace and deliberate and plan what his next move is. But Haman stays behind to beg for his life from Esther. But when the king returns, he's even more outraged at what he finds. Verse 8. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. Misunderstand much? And the king said, Will he even assault the queen in my presence, in my house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high. And the king said, Hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. How ironic. Haman had set up a trap for God's people only in the end to fall into it himself. Are you beginning to sense in this story the invisible, behind-the-scenes power and justice of God at work? 
Let's quickly look at the last act, Act 3, very quickly. The victory and prosperity of God's people. The victory and prosperity of God's people. Chapter 8, with Haman now dead, the king now gives that signet ring he gave to Haman to Mordecai. And Esther begs the king to issue another edict that would, ref- that would revoke the former edict, the one that was uh, ordering the annihilation of her people, the Jews. But a royal edict can't be revoked. Only another edict can be issued that might somehow, somehow protect the Jews. So Mordecai, now wearing the signet ring, issues a kingdom-wide edict that gives all the Jews royal permission to defend themselves, to form an army, and defend themselves against all who would attack them on the impending judgment day. Chapter 9. When the appointed judgment day finally arrives, the Jews throughout the entire kingdom, aided by all the officials, And governors defend themselves and even prevail mightily against their enemies. The ten sons of Haman also are killed by the sword and are ordered by Esther brutally to be displayed on the gallows. Esther also decrees that the Jews be given an additional day to continue seeking vengeance on their enemies. And by the end of the fighting, after those two days, the Jews had struck down 75,000 of their enemies throughout the empire. 75,000. Not only do God's people keep their lives, but they also exact revenge on those who sought to destroy them. An opportunity, mind you, that they would not have had had the first edict been revoked. God is at work. Because of this great victory, a feast is inaugurated. The Feast of Purim, named after Haman's casting of lots, Pur, tried to assign a date to the Jews' destruction. So a feast is inaugurated, the Feast of Purim. Verse 20 of chapter 9. And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Xerxes, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month Adar, and also the fifteenth day of the same, year by year, as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies, and as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness, and from mourning into holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. Last chapter, chapter 10, the epilogue, all is well. Xerxes instates Mordecai, the Jew, in Haman's place as second in command over all of Persia. And God's people experience peace and prosperity as they endure their exile and await their coming Messiah. The end. Great story, isn't it? We've covered a lot. Give me just a few more minutes to show you how the story of Esther can encourage us. Five minutes. As we made our way through this story, we didn't see the word God. We didn't hear the word God. 
not in the text at least. But now that the story is over, look back at the order of events in the narrative. God's presence is undeniable, isn't it? God is subtly but certainly present. There are no miracles, there are no plagues or signs and wonders. But there is a silent, patient, persistent, invisible power. Do you sense that? Friends, that power you sensed was none other than the presence of our sovereign God who orders and works all things in human history for his own glorious purposes. And he's not just generally sovereign over the events of the story in some remote and vague way. He's sovereign over all the specifics, too. As one pastor has said, God is meticulously sovereign. He controls even the smallest, minute details of this story. Do you really think it to be a coincidence? Do you really think it to be a coincidence? when Esther just happened to be advanced to the top level of the king's harem, or when Mordecai just happened to overhear the guards conspiring against the king, or when Haman just happened to be in the palace when the king had realized that Mordecai had been unrewarded, or when the king just happened to walk into the room at the precise moment when Haman had fallen upon Esther in a questionable way, or when the gallows Haman had built just happened to be ready when the king was ready to bring Haman to justice. This story has God's fingerprints all over it. And the same is true for our own stories. Commenter, commentator Karen Jobes says that the book of Esther is the most true-to-life biblical example of God's providence that is his invisible guidance in our lives. The most true-to-life example of God's providence precisely because God seems absent. Look, our, our lives aren't filled. They're not always filled with the miraculous or the spectacular. We're just not. We're just not. Our lives are filled with Desires and motives and choices and decisions, both good and bad, like the story of Esther. And God works mightily through them all. That's what I've learned. That's what I'm continuing to learn as I just now begin to emerge from a dark, dense forest of just trial and confusion as this episode of my life begins to resolve and I look back on all the factors and circumstances that influenced my decisions, both good and bad, I can see God's sovereign hand guiding me. Now, what is he guiding me to? I don't know. I don't know. And I don't need to know. One thing I do know 
God never abandons his people. Do you need to hear that this morning like I do? Is there a situation in your own life that seems hopeless? Or is there a situation even in our church family that bothers you, causes you to despair? Remember, God will never abandon you. How do I know that? Because there's only been one time in the history of the world when God abandoned his people. When God was actually absent. You see, the apparent absence of God in the book of Esther points us to the actual absence of God in the book of Matthew. Chapter 27, verse 46. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Abandoned me? At the cross, Jesus took our sin and was cursed by God so that we might be forgiven and become his righteousness. But on the cross also, Jesus gave us the wonderful gift of God's sustained presence. Jesus was abandoned by God in his time of need so that we might be helped by God in our time of need. Friends, God is at work. He's always at work, even when he appears to be absent. Even more than that, Jesus' death shows us that God is always at work, especially when he appears to be absent. He's at work in my life. He's at work in your life. And even more certainly, he's at work in the life of our church. I urge you this morning from my own experience and fallenness, trust God even when you can't see him. Hope in him even when you can't feel him. And praise him. For we know that in all things, God works together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Glory to God. Let's pray. Immortal, invisible, God-only wise. We give you the highest praise for all your mystery. We don't understand you. And for that, we give you praise. We don't know what else to do with you then give you praise for all of your mystery (coughs) and your greatness. Thank you for your sovereign hand that assures us of your guidance. Thank you that we have a good shepherd in the Lord Jesus who lays his life down for his sheep.
thank you for the Holy Spirit whom you've given us as an indwelling gift so that we might always be with the Lord, both now and forever. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand as we respond to God's word and sing.